You're listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. At Southwide Baptist Church, our mission is to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and thereby lead people to worship God authentically, connect in biblical community, grow in Christian maturity, and multiply disciples and churches both locally and globally. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. Now let's join Pastor Jeremy for today's message. And if you have a copy of God's Word, let me invite you to turn with me to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. Uh, We are uh, entering of this gospel where we're really just uh, setting our minds and hearts on preparing for Easter, preparing for Easter. So John chapter 11, these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. And so we are working our way through that purpose And it is that purpose explicitly for which John writes. He writes in order that uh, we might have life in Christ, believing that Jesus is the Son of God. And so far, what we've seen is that John is writing from the vantage point of Jesus' ministry. Uh, He is primarily sharing with us the things that Jesus did, His miracles, His teaching, uh, all of the things that we see in the ministry of Jesus He is giving those things to us in order that we might believe. But here there is a transition point. Uh, For the first time in John's gospel, we turn our attention mostly to the cross of Jesus Christ. There is a shift, if you will, at the end of John chapter 11 from this miracle of this display of Jesus' power to uh, this display of Jesus' mission, this proclamation that Jesus is in fact going to the cross. And we're going to see very clearly this kind of looming kind of uh, reality that the cross of Jesus is uh, the, the thing that is on His mind. It turns very quickly toward that end. And what you're going to find is Almost as if John is put on the brakes. He's been rapidly moving through the ministry of Jesus, but he puts on the brakes here. And this final half, this last half of John spends all of his time focusing on this one goal, the goal of going to the cross. It's a turning point. It is for John, as the missionary to the Muslims, Samuel Zwimner said and. Uh, 19, around 1952, he said, here is the very heart of our message and our mission. It is the cross of Christ. If the cross of Christ is anything to the mind, it is surely everything. The most profound reality and the sublimest mystery. One comes to realize that literally all the wealth and glory of the gospel centers here. The cross is the pivot point as well as the center of the New Testament thought. It is the exclusive mark of the Christian faith, the symbol of Christianity, 
and a sonosher. John Piper writes these words. The Bible says that when God illuminates our heart at conversion, He gives the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That is quoted from 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. He goes on, either we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, or we don't see it at all. And the face of Jesus Christ is the beauty of Christ reaching its climax in the cross. The bloody face of Christ crucified, and by the way, triumphant, is the wisdom and power and boast of God. Life is wasted if we do not grasp the glory of the cross, cherish it for the treasure that it is, and cleave to it as the highest price of every pleasure and the deepest comfort in every pain. And so it is with great urgency that John turns his attention to the cross and that we turn our attention leading into Easter toward the cross of Christ. So if you found your place, let me invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. John chapter 11, beginning with verse 45. The Bible says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what He did, believed in Him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Don't you love it when pages stick together in your Bible? So the chief priests and Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That He will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where He was, He should let them know so that they might arrest Him. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we pray this morning that as we turn now our attention to the cross, even as we have seen throughout this Gospel, we have seen Your cross displayed over and over again. And the Gospel declared, but as we turn our faces now to see You, the crucified Christ, and all that it entails this final few weeks before You died for us on the cross, Lord, I pray that You would help us to see... <coughs> with great clarity 
with great significance what You have done for us. I pray that if there is one here in this place who's never trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior, that this would be the day that they turn from their sins and trust in Christ alone for salvation. God, would You convict their hearts and draw them. Even as Your Word says, as Jesus is lifted up, I pray, God, that You would draw them to Yourself today and save their soul. And Lord, remind us, as Christians, this sacrifice that has been made for us, remind us of how great it is. May we feel, as was mentioned a few moments ago in Connect Group, the gravity of this sacrifice. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. So, you can feel the sudden turn if you read carefully. In fact, the, the hanging ending here at the end of chapter 11 leaves us with this hanging moment of, of what's coming next. All of the, the, the final chapters of the second half of John are pointed toward this moment. They begin to plot from that moment to arrest him and ultimately to kill him. That's the story. That's the scene. That's a certain somberness that sets in. John begins by celebrating there at the beginning that many of the Jews who had come with Mary had seen what he did and they believed in him. And, and of course, this is, this is on the tail end of him raising Lazarus from the dead. And there's this great celebration that their loved one is alive again. And all of these people believe in Jesus as the Son of God. But just as quickly as that's mentioned in the very next breath, John says, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. They, they told them the story, obviously with malicious intent, not to give them a witness of who Christ was, but rather to lead up to this plot that would begin to thicken. It's as if a, a shadow was falling over Jerusalem, the, the shadow of the cross. The evil of the world was all being felt in this moment and would grow and grow. The urgency of the hour began to quicken. But the pace of the story slows. You almost sense that this is the real heart of what John has been meaning to get to. He gave us all of this background information in order to get us ready to come to the cross of Christ. Even the theme, the festivals, all of the celebration, Passover in particular, it shifts. It begins to feel a lot less like a celebration and more like this looming significance. And yet we don't see it quite yet. This is, of course, the follow-up to the story of Lazarus. Many believed, but not everyone believed. It was not the response of everyone. This moment was a line in the sand. Some would come to believe upon Christ and some would go on rejecting Christ and rise up against Him. They would rather have their authority and their kingdom rather than having Christ. That's the two options that are here before them. Either choose Jesus or turn away. Notice verse 48 if we let Him go on like this, everyone will believe in Him. And here's the result. The Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They were more concerned with their own authority over their own lives 
the things that they had built up for themselves than they were turning to Jesus. And they knew that if they turned to Christ, they were going to have to let their own authority go. They were going to have to let their own kingdoms go. I always wonder if John was kind of laughing to himself as he wrote this. You you can kind of hear this built-in sarcasm recorded in the words of these men. (laughs) If we let Him go on like this. As if they could stop Him, right? If they let Jesus go on. Jesus here has already raised the dead. Of course, it's nothing to do with what they let Him do or not do. What were they going to do to stop Him? You let Him go on living, everyone believes in Him. You, you kill him and we know that everyone will ultimately bow the knee to him. He's only fulfilling the mission for which he came. You cannot ultimately stop Jesus. It's a no-win situation to rise up against Jesus. So let me say a couple of things to you just here at the onset. Everyone, all people, confronted by the truth of Jesus, must make a decision. That decision is, are you with Him or are you against Him? You must make the personal decision, are you with Jesus or are you against Jesus? Know this, that if Jesus is everything that He's claimed to be so far, then He poses a very real threat to both your power and your kingdom. If Jesus is in fact the Son of the living God, if He's Lord of Lords, if Jesus is ruler over all things, then the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of men cannot ultimately coexist. If Jesus is who He says He is, we need to be reminded that the claims of Jesus are so universal that all other kingdoms bow the knee to Jesus and all other authorities bow the knee to Jesus. You don't restrict the authority of the Son of God to a certain sphere. This is what you believe, but I don't believe that. Oh, this is what you follow, but I don't necessarily follow that. That impacts your life, but it doesn't impact my life. Not so if Jesus is who He says that He is. Jesus is the Son of God, the Creator of all things, the Logos, then every knee must bow the knee to Jesus. Every one of us are confronted with this truth about Christ. And you will either make the decision to be for Him or to be against Him. Which leads to the second thing that we must see, and that is that turning against Jesus is a no-win situation. What could they do to stop Him? They could kill Him. He's only fulfilling his mission. They could let him go on. People are going to go on to believe in him. At the end of the day, if Jesus is the Son of God, anyone who rises up against Jesus, it is a no-win situation. And Christian, I just, need to, I just need to remind you of that this morning. There's a lot of panic. There's a lot of concern. There's a lot of fear that sets in in the mind of believers when we think about the, the events of the world around us. But here is the reality. Anyone who rises up against Jesus, it is a no-win situation. Jesus wins. Amen? I hope you believe that this morning. And I hope that more than just believing it, I hope that it sets the course and the tenor of your life. That you live every day of your life as if Christ has already won the battle. At the same time, if you are here this morning and you would turn your 
back in rebellion against God. That you would choose to disobey Him with your life. Know this, that that is also a no-win situation. You cannot turn your face against Jesus and win. Jesus wins in the end. That's the exact truth that Caiaphas goes after when he speaks out among the people. And he didn't even know what he was saying. (laughs) Here is where we get to the heart of the passage. And by the way, that sets the trajectory for all of the rest of John. Here's what John tells us. The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council. It's time to rally the troops. We don't have any other recourse. We've got to get all the guys together and figure out what we're going to do with Jesus. The Pharisees by themselves have been taking on Jesus to this point. But it's at this point they say we can no longer make the kind of decisive action against Jesus that must take place. It has to be judicial. We have to find some reason Jesus is breaking the law in order to take action against Him. So they rally the council. The highest judicial body in the land under Roman law Internal to the Jewish people was the Sanhedrin. It was the combination of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Seventy men, many of them priests, one of them being the high priest, the presiding officer over the Sanhedrin. And this guy's name was Caiaphas. So they lay out the problem on the floor of the meeting. They make sure the case is heard. Verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. So that's the risk. The Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Jesus is disturbing the peace. And so they're going to, they've been so gracious as to let us continue to rule in our own land, but that's not going to go on if we let Jesus take over. One of them, the guy by the name of Caiaphas, speaks up. He was the high priest, and he says to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He actually rebukes them. He calls them ignorant. You guys are idiots. You don't know anything. (laughs) But don't miss it. Caiaphas is not arguing for Jesus. He's actually arguing Against Jesus. He's arguing that if it can be determined somehow that Jesus is breaking the law and that killing him is better for the common good, then it would be better to kill him than the entire nation to be destroyed by the Roman army. He argues for the very two things that they are concerned about. It's better for you. He's arguing for their place, their authority, their position. It's better for you. It's better for the nation. Not the nation that God has built. The nation that you've built. Your kingdom. It's better for your way of life to kill Jesus. Get rid of Jesus. Of course you can't let Him continue. In other words, the high priest is arguing for what is politically and socially expedient rather than for what is Right. And contrary to their reasoning, the story goes on that Jesus did die and the nation actually perished anyway. Not because of Jesus' rebellion, but because of their own rebellion. This is why the Bible says that there's a way that seems right to a man and in the end it leads to destruction. 
Little did he know that what he was saying was really carrying a double meaning, though. That's why John says here in verse 51, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. It's not doing this knowingly. Caiaphas didn't mean this. He didn't intend this. He didn't say it of of his own accord, but he didn't even realize what he was saying. He used sacrificial language, making Jesus the scapegoat in order that they might continue to live the way they wanted to live underneath the Roman army, the Roman government. We keep our power, we keep our kingdom, and Jesus is gone. But John says, Caiaphas, what you've just said is actually prophetic. Jesus being put to to death was actually the sacrifice for the nation that they ultimately needed. It was actually the sacrifice that would ultimately keep the nation from perishing. It was the fulfillment of what John has already told us. Jesus said in John 3.16, you know it well, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. The attempt to get rid of Jesus actually became the means through which God would slay His only Son and keep sinners from perishing who put their faith and trust in Him. It's just as Peter said in Acts 2, that this man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus he says, was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God is in control of this. He's sovereign over this. This is happening because God has intended it to be this way. But he says, you crucified him and killed him by the hands of lawless men. You see, if we hear the words of Caiaphas the way John intended for us to hear them, we have heard the main truth of this passage. And the message of the cross of Christ. He says this. It is better for you that one man should die for the people. Not that the whole nation should perish. Here's the point. At the cross of Jesus. Jesus died in the place of sinners. To satisfy the penalty of sin. At the cross, Jesus died in the place of sinners to satisfy the penalty of sin. That's what Caiaphas said unknowing. It's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. It's the truth that makes the cross central to the Christian message. There is a guilty verdict that hangs over the head of every single person on the planet because we are all sinners. Every one of us deserving of death and hell and the judgment of God for all of eternity. And that is a penalty that must be paid. The truth of the Bible is that sinners perish forever under the wrath of a holy God. Think of how hot the physical violence of the cross was. All of the suffering that Jesus endured. And that does not even compare to the spiritual violence that Jesus endured on the cross. 
All of the torture, all of the pain, all of the lashings, the nails through the hands, the the suffocation that took place on the cross, all of that happening doesn't even begin to compare to the turning away of God's face, to the feeling of the abandonment of God, to feeling His his disgust for sin, to, to feel all of those things. And Jesus is the one who endured all of that. God's only Son. He slays His Son in this violent way because of the way that He feels toward sinners. It is a penalty that was not due Christ. It was due us. We have sinned against God. The Bible says that we are rebels. We are the enemies of God. We are children of wrath. We're sons of disobedience. Everything that Jesus got, we deserve. And this is what John needs us to see. The cross was the holy, just, righteous anger of God poured out on the sinless Son of God for sinners. Soon as this silent, final, decisive verdict was given to Jesus, those who have faith in Jesus are set free. Jesus receives this destructive, deadly penalty. And so hell is real. All men by nature stand condemned before a holy God and the only hope we have is to put our faith and trust in Jesus. There's a movement today that talks about God being love and gracious and merciful. And He is. Talks much about God loving us and caring for us and forgiving us. But it does not erase the fact that that God also is just and holy and righteous. And that His wrath burns hot against sinners. And you don't believe me? You don't believe, number one, that Jesus is loving? Look to the cross. He's loving Because He spares us for the life of His only Son. But you don't believe that God is wrathful and just and holy? Look to the cross. Look at what God did to His only Son in our place. The One who did not deserve deserve to die. None of us would ever do this for our children. None of us would ever take our, our children and sacrifice them Especially in this way, in the place of our enemies. In the, in the place of those that, that turned away from us. That mistreated us. And yet, this is exactly what Christ has done for us. There's so much that Caiaphas did not even realize that he was saying. You see, the cross is the dividing line between eternal condemnation and eternal salvation. It hangs in the balance between death and life. And the cross is the only bridge that spans the distance between sinners and a holy God. The cross is the only answer to our sin. So what did Caiaphas unknowingly say? And what does John want us to hear in his words? Three things that were accomplished primarily in what John gives us in Caiaphas' words here in the cross of Christ. Number one, on the cross, Jesus became our substitute. On the cross, Jesus became our 
substitute. Caiaphas says, it's better that one man die for the people. It's not just die defending the people. We think about in America, soldiers who die on the battlefield defending our freedom. And certainly, certainly that is honorable and something we should thank God for every day. But Jesus did something in such a greater way because it was a death that Jesus took in our place that we actually deserved to die. The, the language here is sacrificial. To die for the people is the idea of paying a ransom. That, that there is a price that must be paid in order for us to be set free. And the price that was paid is that Jesus died in our place. See, both, both John and Caiaphas understood this to be sacrificial language or substitutionary language. Either Jesus dies or the nation dies. In Caiaphas' mind, it's under Rome. But John wants us to see it's either Jesus dies or we die. Death must be the penalty. Blood must be shed. While Caiaphas is thinking purely on a political level, John invites us to think in terms of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, the One who died ultimately in our place that we might be set free. And this is what you must get. There is a death that must be paid. Blood must be spilled. The penalty of our sin must be satisfied. God can't just look at our sin and say, oh, no big deal, we'll start over again tomorrow. If God is holy and just, then His wrath against sin must be satisfied and His punishment against sin must be carried out. His holiness demands it. You don't have a holy God and a God who just lets people get away with things. His sovereignty ensures it. You don't have a God who's somehow sitting in heaven and never saw sin coming. If God is sovereign and He's holy and He's just, then sin cannot go unpunished. The only question then is, who will receive sin's penalty? Imagine it like this, if you can think of all of the gruesome death that Jesus received on Himself and all of the wrath of God that He suffered Imagine it as if you and I are standing in a valley. And on one corner of this valley is a great dam that's holding back all of the world's water. Every ocean, we know that much of the world is covered by water. Imagine this dam holding all of it back. And this valley that we're in is surrounded by mountains and there's no way of escape. None. And in one moment, the dam breaks and all of the water, all of the weight, all of the violence, all of the destruction comes rushing in at one moment and destroys everything in the valley, including us. This is only a taste of what it means to suffer under the wrath of God. It's a similar picture of the Red Sea parting and God's people walking across on dry land and God holding back the waters only to release 
the waters of his wrath against Pharaoh's army. And in that moment, life ceases. It's all over. Everything is crushed under the weight. And it is as if Jesus said, I will stand in your place. You can go free. You can be saved from this great destruction. And in that moment, Jesus suffered all of the wrath of God poured out on Him for sinners in our place. And we were set free. This is substitution. Jesus died in our place. On the cross, He becomes our substitute. Secondly, on the cross, Jesus becomes the final sacrifice. The final sacrifice. He says in verse 50, It is better for you that one man should die than the rest of the nation. It's better that just one man dies and the rest of the nation is set free. And of course, Caiaphas is speaking in terms of sinfulness. But John wants us to see that the same thing is true theologically. It's better that one man die and not the rest of the nation. Putting lives on a balance, if you were to put the life of Jesus on one side and the life of everybody else on the other side, John says it's better that that one man die so that all can be set free. That one life, Jesus being the only one who is sufficient. It's, it's unfathomable that this, this death of one life, the perfect sinless Son of God, could save all of the rest. But this is exactly what has happened in the Gospel. John's readers are hearing this and they're saying, you don't even know how true that this is. Think about this. These are Jews that are hearing this sacrificial language. They're offering sacrifice after sacrifice. Every day in the temple, they are bringing sacrifices to the Lord. Year after year, they're bringing this ultimate Passover sacrifice. Even at this moment, they're purifying themselves and preparing to bring yet another sacrifice over and over and over and over again. And yet, what John says is that it's better for this one man to die Just one sacrifice than all of the rest of the people perishing. It is what the writer of Hebrews said in chapter 10. He says, For since the law has been a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, they weren't useless, given by God for the obedience of the people, but they were shadows, forms. And he says that it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The balance of the scale is always tipped. There's no life that is worthy of ultimately providing the forgiveness of sins. None of these sacrifices, no matter how many, no matter how perfect, Sacrifice after sacrifice, it can never, by those same ones, make perfect those who draw near. Verse 2, otherwise, 
would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers have once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's impossible. It's only a reminder. I don't know about you, but I'm reminded every day of my sin. Anything I try to do to make my sin better, it only reminds me more of it. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say in verse 11, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. This is what they're experiencing. And to this, John says, one has done this. Verse 12 of Hebrews says, But when Christ had offered for all time a sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. For by a single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. His sacrifice is final. Once and for all. At the cross, Jesus died. And there's no one else. It's Jesus alone who can ultimately accomplish that. All else is insufficient. If you were to put on a scale all of the sinfulness of man, And on the other side, you were to put any goodness in man. Never would you ever balance the scale. Never at any point could you even begin to think to tip the scale. But Jesus in His one act has totally obliterated the scale. The scale is no longer my righteousness versus your righteousness. The scale is Christ's merit and His merit alone. He is the once and for all sacrifice for sinners. Third, not only did Jesus become our substitute and ultimately the one who is the final sacrifice, Jesus became the law's satisfaction. Jesus became the law's satisfaction. Caiaphas says, you know nothing at all. You're ignorant. Caiaphas was more right than he would ever know. And it wasn't just those around him that were ignorant. He himself was equally as ignorant. Here's the irony. They are gathered in a court of law, human law, the highest court of their land, in order to find some way of putting Jesus underneath the authority of that law. And they still can't figure it out. Jesus is being heard in the court of human law. And even in the court of human law, they're struggling to justify their actions against Him. The reason is because of because man's sense of right and wrong is corrupt. It's broken. It's distorted. We never in our own natural minds understand what is right. But real righteousness, real kingdom, real law proceeds directly from the righteousness of God and it is perfect. And the irony is that while they are trying to seek justification for their unrighteousness, even in their unjust, sinful act of murdering the Son of God, God was providing a way of perfect righteousness through the Gospel. This is what happens at the cross. Jesus satisfies the law. In all of our distortion, in all of our corruption, Jesus fulfills it. 
He fulfills the law perfectly. The key is Jesus was not guilty. Jesus was the only one standing among the men, among the nation. Jesus, the only one in the whole world who was eternally without sin and would never sin even while on earth. He satisfies the the righteous requirement of the law in perfection. And so when Jesus dies in the place of sinners, He satisfies the requirement of the law and the penalty of sin. He satisfies it. This is what Romans 8 tells us. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. This is exactly what's happening. By sending His only Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who are those? Those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. It is as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So why is the cross so significant? The cross is significant because Jesus died in the place of sinners to satisfy the penalty due us because of our sin. So at the end of chapter 11, we have only the beginning of the plot to kill Jesus. There's not an immediate confrontation with Jesus. You'll notice that. In fact, verse 54 says that Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but he went to this place called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. It wasn't until later that Jesus would make his entrance into the city. We know that as the the triumphal entry or Palm Sunday. We'll celebrate that in just a couple of weeks and also see it here in the Gospel of John. We're left with this looming shadow of the cross that we must do something with. They weren't immediately confronted with the person of Jesus, but they were immediately confronted with the message of Jesus. And they had to decide. Either Jesus dies or they die. And the decision of their hearts was to rise up in rebellion against Jesus and to put Him to death. But the similar kind of question is before us today. Not whether we will kill Jesus. Jesus has already been crucified. The question for us today is will it be Jesus or will it be me? When it comes to the Christian faith, when it comes to our relationship with God, whether you've trusted in Jesus or not, there is no shifting into neutral. You don't get to be passive if Jesus is Lord of Lords, King of Kings, Savior of the world. You don't just get to say, well, I'll decide on that later. Or, I'm not sure if I believe. No, in fact, when you come to the Word and you hear the Gospel proclaimed, you decide every single time you hear it whether you're going to respond in faith to Christ, whether you're going to follow Jesus, or whether you're going to continue in unbelief and sinfulness. And what this high priest unknowingly said 
is it is better that one man die than the whole world perish. The fact is, one man did die. Christ died for sinners. And the Bible teaches that this, this sacrifice was the very thing that would satisfy the wrath of a holy God against you and I if we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The decision hangs in the balance. Will you follow Christ or will you perish without Him? With every head bowed and every eye closed, this morning we want to give you the opportunity to respond to that question. The question of this text. Will you receive the death of the Lord Jesus on your behalf and surrender your life to Him as Lord and Savior? Will today you receive Jesus as the One who stands in the valley and receives the wrath of God in your place so that you might be set free? Or will you suffer the wrath of God for all of eternity? Our God is a loving God. And that He demonstrated His love for you by slaying His only Son. It's unimaginable. And yet He has. Will you trust Him today with your life? Will you turn from your sin and give everything that you are to Jesus Christ today? With every head bowed, every eye closed, in just a few moments, we're going to stand. Today you, you have a decision to make. Will you follow Christ or will you continue to turn away from Him. So in just a few moments, your decision here in this place is I want to follow Jesus. I want to invite you right where you're standing. Step out of that place. Walk down this aisle. Say to me today, Pastor, I, I want to follow Jesus. And I'll lead you to trust Him today. His death being sufficient for your salvation. He'll give everything that you are to Christ today. He'll save you. You'll be set free from the penalty of your sin if you trust in Christ today. So in just a few moments, you come. Others here in this place, you need to be reminded that there's a Savior who died for you. His name is Jesus. Today, we must rest in Him. Trust in Him. Live for Him with everything that we are. Oh, what love was displayed for us on the cross of Calvary and that love compels us to live our lives for Him, that we have died with Him. And everything we do is now for Christ. So maybe you need to surrender fresh and new today. Or maybe there's a certain area of your life that you need to turn from. Surrender to Christ. Today is the day to do that. Maybe He's calling you to a certain thing in your life and you haven't obeyed Him yet. Today you need to respond in obedience. Whatever the case is, today you follow Jesus. All across this room, would you stand with me? And I'm going to pray. And this invitation will begin. Lord, we pray that you'll have your way in our hearts and in this place. May we all come to the foot of the cross today. In Jesus' name, amen. You come as Dylan Lisas. You've been listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. We also invite you to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram by searching for Southwide BC. Thank you for listening. 
And may you continue to worship, connect, grow, and multiply as you follow Jesus Christ.